Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. Well, Tim, we're off to another great year. Downloads are up, our roster of guests has never been better, and we're reaching more people in more countries than we ever have. Yeah, it's fantastic, Kurt. And we do this as a service to build a community for those who are interested in applying behavioral science to work and life. If you like what we're doing, maybe you could just jump up and share the cost of a cup of coffee with us each month to help us produce this great content. Just head over to the Patreon site that we have at www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves and let us know how many cups of coffee you'll share with us each month. You don't even drink coffee, Tim. So why are you asking? asking listeners to share a cup of coffee with you. Okay. I meant to say the cost of a cup of coffee. Is that, is that uh, I, okay. That's much, much better, okay. much better. And, and it's not that much money. And so we hope you'd be willing to help us out. Uh, we're on the hunt also. We are on the hunt for a behavioral groups intern and we intend to pay them for their time. So anything you can do to help offset those costs would be terrific. And if you have anybody that you want to uh, recommend, Mr. Tim, what do you think yeah. they should do? They should just drop us a line. Our contact information is going to be in the show notes. All right. So yeah, just jump out and let us know uh, what who you think would be great for it. Yes. All right. But right now, we'd like to tell you about our amazing guest. Absolutely. Shelly Archambault is the author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. It's part memoir, part inspiration, and part career guidebook for the most ambitious among us. She went from being the only black girl in her high school to being the CEO of a Silicon Valley tech firm, MetricStream. Shelly talked with us about her upbringing and the challenges she faced growing up. But what was even better than hearing about her challenges was talking with her about the way she makes decisions. She has this ability to see how things fit or don't fit into her personal and business goals. And then she acts on them with amazing conviction. She is one remarkable person. God, that she is, Kurt. And while Shelly likes to tell her story from the point of view that anybody can do what I did, it's really difficult to imagine that just anybody can actually replicate her success. Okay, Tim, we might not all get to be CEO, but there are some really great takeaways from her career that just about anybody can put to use in their own life, be that business or personal. And with that, we want you to sit back with a fine French wine and a tray of high octane goal setting and enjoy our conversation with Shelly Archambault. Shelly Archambault, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Well, thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Oh my gosh, we've been looking forward to it as well. It feels like it's it's taken a long time to happen, but we're going to get started with the speed round. So, and I get to I get to start. So, I want to ask, which would you prefer, pizza and beer or souffle with a fine wine? Souffle with a fine wine. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, travel on a set itinerary or no itinerary at all? Set itinerary. Okay. Would you prefer to learn a new language or a new instrument? Oh, gosh. A new language. 
Wow, that was <laughs> that, a, there's a little hesitation there. there. there What's the hesitation? Yeah. Okay. You right. have a language in mind, just out of curiosity. Uh, if I was going to pick one right now, I'd pick Spanish. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay. Yeah. All right. Last last speed round question. Be rigorous in setting and achieving our goals, or just wait to see what happens. <laughs> you know the answer to that one. Be rigorous, <laughs> set those goals. <laughs> well, well, and, and it's a, it's a main piece of of your book, right? So your your book, un unapologetic, unapologetically ambitious, take risks, break barriers, and create success in your own terms. And so, just to start off, just tell us a little bit about the book, why you wrote it. Um, give us a little background on on that. Uh, certainly, you know, I wrote the book because. I want more people to be able to achieve their aspirations. And I've been, I've been fortunate. I've been able to achieve most of the goals and aspirations I set for myself. And along the way, I learned a ton, a ton. And I want to share it with others because I want more people to be able to do that. And, you know, I decided probably 10, 15 years ago that I was going to write the book. Because okay. I've always tried to be accessible, Kurt, in that I want people, when they reach out to me, I, I want to respond because I want them to know, hey, I'm a real person. You can you can touch me. So I would respond. I still do. I respond. It takes a ton of time, but I absolutely respond as, for as much as I can. Uh, but I couldn't meet with everybody that wanted to meet with me as I took on more and more responsibility in my career. I just didn't have the bandwidth. And I said, all right, one day I'm going to write this down. I'm just going to write down what made Shelly Shelly. I'm going to write down the strategies, approaches, what worked, what didn't, the story, the whole bit, so that others can hopefully leverage some of the learnings. So, Shelly, I want to come back to to the speed round question, though, about uh, it, it, just helping people achieve their aspirations. There's still there's still something that goes into setting goals and really being rigorous about setting and achieving goals versus just seeing what happens. So, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, how you've applied a rigorous goal setting approach to your life and how that's impacted you. Definitely. So it's really pretty straightforward, Tim. I realized early that the odds just weren't in my favor. You know, I was, I was a little black girl growing up elementary school. It's a civil rights period of the 1960s for as many people who thought there should be equal rights and civil rights. You had just as many that didn't. Uh, my family moved around a ton and we landed in a town at one point when I was early in elementary school that frankly, I was the only black girl, not only in my class, but in the entire grade and maybe the school. Um, mm. And it became really clear that people didn't think I'd amount to much. They didn't care much about me. And I got a lot of physical and verbal abuse from people. So I said, all right, odds are in my favor. This is really clear. So if I just do what everybody else does, I'm not going to get much out of life. So I've got to figure out how I improve the odds. And planning and goal setting and all that really did it for me. So what I do is really straightforward. If once I figure out what it is I want, what it, you know, what I'm trying to create, what I want to impact, whatever it is, that becomes the goal. And once I have the goal, then I ask myself, what has to be true for me to achieve this goal? And that's doing the homework. You know, I tell people all the time, homework does not stop in school. I still do homework to this day. <laughs> homework is just preparation. So you got to do the work. What does it take to achieve something? Like I wanted to be a CEO. What does it take to achieve to become a CEO? Did the research, et cetera. And then once I understand what has to be true, I ask myself, how do I make it true? And that how do I make it true is my plan. But here's the key. 
because a lot of people set goals and some people even put plans in place to achieve the goals. But what I found is very, very few people make decisions every day consistent with their plan. And that's where the power is. The power yeah. is making, being intentional about everything you do consistent with the plan. That in, that in and of itself is fantastic uh, to think about uh, how important that consistency is and that dedication to the goals that you set. But something else that I found really interesting is that in the execution of your goals, you're, you use collaboration at a very high degree. Like you're really, really interested in working with the people who are in the situation. And uh, is, is that a fair statement? Do you, would you? It, it is. I, more simply stated, I get a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, okay. the answer is absolutely. You know, what I learned early and I was really fortunate to learn this early, but there's very little that you do that somebody else hasn't already done. Mm-hmm. So why not go learn from them versus trying to figure it all out for the first time for yourself? And so, yes, every step of the way, I actually tried to include others, leverage others, learn from others, take help, all those things. Because at the end of the day, I haven't found a single person that's accomplished anything of significance that did it all by themselves. Not a single one. So therefore, the more help you get, the better your odds are. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to a couple things that you said. So first off, um, can you come and talk to my son about homework? Because I, 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 I just can't really get him to wrap his arms around that yet. Um, but that's that's a whole separate side. We'll, we'll talk about that after the show. Um, but you talked about, you know, first it was determining what you want. And I think for many people, that can actually be a really hard part of this equation is I don't really understand what I want, particularly looking out as you did to your your life and going when you were relatively young, going, I want to be a CEO. I mean, for, for so many people, you, you those wishes and wants kind of shift with the wind and, you know, today I want this and tomorrow I want something else. So do you have any suggestions for people on, A, how can I identify what are those core things that, that you want or how did you do that? And, and then just, you know, keeping in, in line with that, you know, what are the tips that you can give people to, to make sure that they, they stay consistent with those pieces? Sure. So first of all, let's be clear. When I decided that I wanted to be a CEO, I had no idea what that meant. So junior year, you have that obligatory conversation with the guidance counselor. What do you want to do? Are you going to college? Not. What do you want to do after college? And I basically said, going to college, but I don't know why, but I don't know what I want to do. And she said, Well, what do you like to do? And I said, Oh, clubs. I'm in all the organizations. American Field Service, French Club, National Honor Society, and I like I like leading them. And she said, Well, you know, clubs and business are really similar. Get people together, go after a common mission, get things done. And I said, Done. I'll run the business. I like running clubs. And so I looked around and the people that run businesses were called CEOs. So I said, okay, I'm going to be a CEO. It was literally, literally, that's, that's what it was. It was, I know it was naive, you know, audacious, right? All of it. But I, I liked having goals. And so that set a goal for me. And I basically built my whole life to be able to achieve that goal. 
Wow. Well, and you put you, you talk about this this setting up this plan and doing this plan and doing your homework in order to achieve that plan. So, so help help our listeners just understand a little bit about so so what was the plan to become a CEO? Obviously, you had that pretty well planned out. It, you know, again, people read the book because it's a fantastic story, and I'm it sure is. you're only going to be able to touch a, a little bit on this. But help help our readers understand how you put that plan together and, and what did it entail. Sure. So now, first of all, I didn't have every single step to CEO planned out, Uh, but I had the big straws, which was I'd done the research, CEO of IBM started out in sales because every CEO that I researched at IBM had started out in sales. Mm -hmm. So I said, that must be the current to power, right? The path to power. Now, listen, this was not obvious. I was coming out of Wharton. Not one of my friends was going into sales. Right. right. That, and they thought I was nuts. You don't go to Wharton and then sell computers. Right. That's not <laughs> that's not how it works. But I'd done the research. And so, OK, that's what I'm going to do. So I started out in sales and then I knew, all right, I need a P&L job. So what's the first P&L job that I can get at IBM? And at IBM at the time, it's called a branch manager. Okay. OK, did the research. Most people became branch managers in their 30s. So I said, fine. I want to become a branch manager at 30. So I said, oh, all right, what has to happen? I mean, literally, that's how I did everything. All right, need a P&L job. That's the first one I can get. Set a timeline. Now what steps or roles do I need to be able to get to that? How do I have to perform? All of those things. Um, and then I looked at what skill sets I needed. You know, it's interesting. I was not a good speaker. Mm. Matter of fact, I was nervous. If I had to speak in front of big groups and I had a piece of paper in my hand, you might actually see that paper shake. Um, and I'm looking around as I get to IBM and all the executives are so polished and they can all speak well, impromptu. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if I can't figure out how to be a good speaker, I'm not even going to become an executive, forget a CEO. So I had to work on that. But that's how I approached everything. I watched, I looked, and then I figured out, okay, what skills do I need to develop? How do I, and then I invested in that and worked on it so that I could be lucky when opportunities came along, I'd have the right skills and capabilities to be able to take advantage of it. So that's basically what I did all the way through and let people know what I wanted to do. There's so much to me in the book about how important your upbringing, specifically your parents, how they influenced you in such a positive way. Do you think you you would have ended up in the same place? Do you think you would ended up at least on a similar journey without the support of, of these amazing parents that you had? No, no. I mean, that's a, that's a full stop. No, because when I was young in elementary school and I write about this in the book, I lost myself there for a while. I was not treated well. um, And therefore I, I just didn't have self-confidence. I didn't, it was just terrible. And if I didn't have my parents there to really counteract that, with the reinforcement and the affirmations and all of those things, then I, I don't think that I would have come out of that with the uh, initiative, with the belief that I can affect my future and my circumstance. So my answer is no. Well, and, and it kind of goes, all of your siblings are really you know, highly produ- productive and successful people as well. You know, Lindy's a professor, Nikki is HR professional, you know, Archie Lester's and the NFL or NFL player director. So, so They've obviously, well. yeah. yeah, they have done well. So, so that, that family support, um, and you, you 
count on them today too, don't you? Is that, that that's part of what you've talked about in, in the book is that support is ongoing. So how do you find the beyond your your family, but how, how do you find these support networks to, to help you as you talked about earlier that you know none of this gets done. People have all done this before and so you, you gotta pull on those. What what do you look for? Mm, so I look for people who who people that I can learn from and people that will build me up, not mm-hmm. not tear me down. So those can come from all walks of life, which is the other thing. It's not just in the office that you find these people, but these people come from everywhere. You know, some I call them I call them cheerleaders. I'm a big believer that mm. you need cheerleaders in your life. And when I say cheerleaders, I mean real cheerleaders. You know, go Tim, yay, Kurt, come on, Shelly, you got this, right? I mean, you need people that will do that for you because life is hard. You know, people don't tell you this, but I'm telling you, life is hard. And because it's hard, we need people around us that remind us that we can actually make it, that we can do it. You know, it's the same reason you have cheerleaders or, you know, athletes, professional football players get in a huddle, right? Yes, to share the play. But why do they really do it? One, two, three, go. It's to psych up to get your best performance on this next play. Well, you know what? In life, we need the same thing. We need people around us who are doing that. So those people can be friends, neighbors, cousins, family. It can be honestly anyone. But people who are in your life who actually reinforce you who after spending time and interaction, you actually feel better about yourself. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that you want to send, spend your time with. People who, after you spend time, you actually feel worse about yourself. Uh-uh. Those are people you have to set aside. Life wow. is hard enough. You don't need getting that directly. <laughs> wow. Has that been hard? Has that been hard to do to, to separate the wheat from the chaff? You know what? I, I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. Um, I've been I've been super super fortunate, uh, but I think most most people around me fit that profile. You know, folks that that don't I don't spend as much time with, frankly, because yeah. even today life is still hard. I still want people around me that are building me up, <laughs> because and I want to build them up. Right? It's a two way street. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, you you talked about self determination theory uh, in in the in the book, and I think that that's a really interesting reference. Can you talk about uh, a little bit to what degree the components of, of uh, competence, autonomy, and relatedness as as sort of the core pillars uh, influenced you or contributed to your success? Mm, yes, I really I included that in the book because in the research um, this really came up and struck me because I realized, huh, this really did make a difference for me. So when you look at those three, you know, autonomy, autonomy is the whole thing where you believe um, that you can own things, that you can actually affect, right, something yourself. That's the whole autonomy thing. The whole competence piece means that you believe that you can master skills, capabilities, right? And I, those two things I had, right? I knew I could study. I knew I could learn. I knew I could perform. The piece that I was weakest on was relatedness. And relatedness is the one where you feel that you actually belong. That was the one that growing up I was always looking for. And I didn't realize it, as I said, and even until I wrote the book that here are the the components and here are the elements. But the belongingness was really the one because I was always the outsider. I was that little black girl Mm -hmm. right? Um, in environments where I was one of the only or one of the very few. I was the kid that moved around so much that seven states before high school, 
right? So I was the new kid on the block, right? All those things don't create the whole relatedness, belongingness piece. So that was something that I had to frankly search out and develop for both for myself. And, um, but once I, once I did and learned how to create those communities, then it became so much, so much better. Well, even in your professional life, you you were, as you mentioned in the book, oftentimes, you know, one of the only women in the executive team and definitely often the only woman of color in, in an executive team in that position. So, again, kind of that outsider perspective. So so what were the, the things that you did to help build that relatedness when you were in those situations, even even as a, as a grown up? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I create I learned to create it. So okay. for instance, when I became, when I became CEO, I actually created a group. I found other women CEOs that were also building businesses in Silicon Valley. And we became a group because I needed peers and you don't have any peers and it's challenging. So I, for, I purposely picked women because I felt the challenges that we face are a little different in Silicon Valley so we could help support each other. And that became, talk about belongingness, that became our group. I mean, we met 15 years. Well, not quite, probably just under 15 years, every quarter. Um, and, you know, supporting each other all the way through and some great things happened. It was, it was wonderful. I created a gourmet dinner club when I moved mm-hmm. to the Silicon Bay area. Why did I do that? Because I needed a network. I needed friends. I needed folks who wanted to do things socially. And so I created it versus finding one to join. So I learned that by creating it myself, I was sure to find it. <laughs> because, yeah. right? I hate it versus trying to go find it. So I tell people all the time, if you can't find your group, create it. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful. Did did some of that you think come about because you did move seven times? Uh, you know, oh, as you were growing up. Yeah, to- totally. I mean, I had a good role model in my mother. I mean, oh, she embarrassed us so much whenever we moved <laughs> to a new neighborhood. You know, literally, she'd take us by the hands within a couple days, and we go knock on every single neighbor's door. <sighs> Hello, my name is Mir Archibald. These are my four children. We just moved in, blah, blah, blah. I mean, she did. And we're just like, oh, right. You just want to <laughs> but, but that whole piece, right? Now, I never took that on. I never did that. Um, yeah. but, but I hacked on it. And my hack was I would go and knock on doors to borrow something from people as a way of meeting people. Because if you're moving in, people would understand that you can't find a hammer, right? Don't know where the screwdriver yeah. is, you know, whatever. And they loan you something. Well, that gives you a chance to have a couple of interactions, right? So, yeah, yeah there are hacks that you can do to meet people. But moving around definitely helped. Well, and you moved around in your adult life as well. And I know in the book you talk about your 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 oldest daughter or your daughter who mm-hmm. kind of rebelled against that movement. And so you actually... You, you stopped moving at, at a point. What was the what was the impetus for that? And how did that how did you kind of make that say, all right, we, we can't as a family move again. This is just too hard um, for my daughter. What was what was the, the story there? Yeah, so we did move around quite a bit. And it is tough. I, but there, honestly, there's pros and cons. Would I change a thing? The answer is no. And if you talk to my kids, they both turned out very well. So it did not destroy them in any way. Um, but at the same time, high school is different yeah. and high school is hard. So as we moved around, right, we committed that in high school, it would be their choice. Yeah. Meaning if they were in high school and didn't want to move, then we wouldn't move. I might still have to move, right, but we wouldn't move. So that's what we did. So up until high school, we moved around, no choice. But once we got to high school, then it was a choice. And you're right. 
I had the opportunity in Silicon Valley. My daughter just finished her freshman year in high school and she said, I don't want to move. Yeah. And I said, okay. So I commuted for three years. There's great research indicating that uh, the the greatest careers are often built when the the person striving in their career has a stay home partner, and uh, and you uh, decided this very early on in your in your relationship. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like to to say I'm going to be the one that's going to that's going to go forward on this? Will you support me? Will you be the stay home dad? <laughs> yes, I can. I know I, you describe it in the book, but there's still a part of me that's like, how the hell did that? How did you have that conversation? <laughs> yeah. So this goes back to the, you know, what do I want? I wanted to be CEO. What has to be true? Well, to your point, I did the research, and yeah, the CEOs were all guys, and they all had stay-at-home wives if they were married. Yeah. And I was like, hmm. Uh, plus, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and I kind of liked that. And I was just like, okay. So I knew that for a long-term relationship to work, I needed to marry somebody who would be willing to stay home eventually. So, okay, that's what has to be true. So how do I make it true? Well, I found a guy that I thought was great. He was ticking off everything else that was on my list. And this was the last question that I had asked. And things are getting serious. And I said, all right. So it's one of those things, you got to take the risk, right? So I'll tell the story. So we sat, um, we had gone out and he's taking me, bringing me back home, dropping me off. And we're sitting uh, right along the, the road, along where I live, under the streetlight and talking. And I said to him, you know, I want children. And he said, yes, we've talked about that. I want children too. And I said, yes. I said, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I really liked that. And I'd be willing to make the trade-offs that are required for someone to be home with the kids when the time was right or needed. And he said, you know, my mom worked the whole time, but she always tried to create her job so that she could be home when it was important. And I said, okay. He said, so yeah, I'd be willing to make that trade off too. And I said, good. I just don't want it to be me who stays home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then I shut up and it was like, Okay, and you could see his, his wheels moving, right? I didn't say a thing. I shut up. And I and he says, Oh. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, okay, I've got the full weight of what Shelly is asking without asking, right? Uh-huh. And I'm just I'm quiet. I'm not saying a thing. Lips are sealed. And so finally he says, Well, Shelly, I've worked my whole life. I've been working since I was twelve. Yeah. I like to work. But I could do that for you. Oh, wow. Wow. Did he have any idea what he was getting into? No, of course not. <laughs> it would be a CEO. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was really, it was really interesting, you know, but he, he asked me to marry him like three weeks later. So, no, they, yeah. so, so yeah. it worked, right? It worked. And then it that was worked. a good one. It worked. But you know, it's interesting. If I could just make a point, Kurt and Tim, and that is important questions you know, key issues and topics don't get better with time. Mm. It's so much better and frankly, even easier to talk about things in advance than it is when you're in the thick of it. So that's my other advice, because what was the risk? Here's the risk. The risk was he could say, oh, my God, I would never do that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the risk. The risk he could say, oh, my God. And then I have a decision to make. Okay. Is that what I want for my life partnership or not? But you know what? I'm making it then. We're not getting to the point where 
there is a child, there are children, and now we've got to make some decisions and we've never talked about it and all these other things are going on, right? We need to know now so that we can then think about it, plan, well, what does that mean? How do we, it makes it so much easier later. So have the hard conversations, whatever it is that you're thinking to the back of your mind. So one day we'll talk, no, talk about it now. The sooner you do it, the easier and the better it is. You are masterful at planning. And I'm curious about what happens when things don't go the way that you anticipate them to go. Oh, that's why. <laughs> well, I mean, life is hard, right? Life is not just hard, but it's unpredictable. Yep. Uh, and so what do you do then? Right. Well, that's why I have an entire section of the book called Swerve. <laughs> because that's what you do. You swerve. It's almost like you hit a roadblock when you're driving. You just swerve around it, right? And kind of keep going. So that's the key. The key is you handle it at the time. And if you have to change your plan, you change your plan. But don't change the goal. You know, I started out by saying I set the goal to be a CEO. I joined IBM and said, okay, I'll be CEO of IBM. Well, I didn't get introduced to CEO of IBM. So that didn't happen, but I did become a CEO. So I had to change my plan. It's okay to change your plan, but keep your goals. Don't give up on the goals just because it gets hard or you hit a roadblock. You know, I, I love the saying, the only difference between a roadblock and a stepping stone is how high you lift your leg. All right. Uh -oh. So figure out another way to get around it, to go over it, under it, get some help and push through it, you know, whatever it happens to be. Don't let it stop you. Just change the path. So you talk about in the section about making a plan, you talk about the three key elements that made you who you were. One, work hard. Two, make trade-offs. And I think we can talk about trade-offs for a while. And three, strategize forward to your goals. Um, and, and you have this pretty early on in, in your career. What I'm, I'm wondering is for people who might be they're already an adult or midstream in their career. Is this still applicable? Can they can they take that information and that that way of looking and making a plan and, and still apply it even if they're in their 30s already and they're not on that path to CEO or in their 40s and they're looking to to, to move it? What does it does it have a timestamp on it? Absolutely not. It is never too late to plan. Just like it's never too early. You know, I had I had some feedback from a woman who read the book and she's in her 60s. And she mm -hmm. said, Kelly, I read it because I wanted to, you know, you wrote it, your friend, whatever. And I wanted to see, read it, support you. She goes, but I was surprised. I'm actually using some of your ideas as I think about planning what my retirement and what do I want? And then it's the next phase. And the whole, she goes, this is amazing. So what I would tell you is, as long as you have something in your life that you are still trying to do, trying to accomplish, trying to impact, then yes. You can absolutely take learnings and takeaways from this book because that's what it's all about. Every It's not planning your life. It's just planning for the next goal, the next mm -hmm. objective. You talk about going to Tokyo and making a presentation that, uh, that, that you said was the first presentation that had been made in completely in, in Japanese. All the slides were in Japanese as opposed to being a mix or just in English and, and relying on your Japanese colleagues to do the translation themselves. Uh, you said you could write a whole book about that. We don't have time for a whole book, but tell us what that book might be like. What, what are, what are the key lessons that you learned from that, that you'd want to share? Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, for my time in Japan, there were so many key lessons. One, that's where I really learned that I had skills and capabilities that I didn't even realize I had as a result of the experiences that I'd had in the U S 
For instance, I spent my whole career being a minority in business. You don't really think about it, but I had. Well, when I went to Japan, I was able to be pretty successful pretty quickly. And I think it's because I knew what it was like to be a minority. I knew mm. that people, that what I've done didn't come with me when I walked in the room, that I had to prove myself every single time. I knew that the best way to be effective was to support my team, make them successful so that I could be successful. I knew, I mean, all these different things that I just do out of hand. Whereas people who've never had that effect, they walk in thinking that everything they've done comes with them, that when they say things, people will just do them. When I do, they just have that expectation. So for them, you know, people who are in the majority coming over to situations like that, they actually have a lot to learn. So I tell people, as an example, if you're a woman or a minority, do an international assignment. It'll actually be easier for you in many ways. So anyway, so that was one, learning about skills and things that you don't have. Two, oh my goodness, I learned so much about working with different cultures and learning about how to make things successful. My first staff meeting over in Asia Pacific, I had responsibility for all of Asia. So that was you know, Japan and Korea and China and the whole ASEAN region with Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, right? All those. Well, guess what? You have a staff meeting. There isn't an Asian culture, right? There isn't an Asian way of doing business. There is a Korean way of doing business, Japanese. Well, so suddenly in this meeting, it was a disaster because I brought the American, what is a meeting? A meeting is when you pull people together to make critical decisions so you can move forward. Uh -uh. At the very opposite end of the spectrum, you have the Japanese, who a meeting is just a confirmation of everything that's already been decided. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, those are two opposite ends. And everybody else is somewhere along that stream. <laughs> so this meeting, right? <laughs> um, but learning that, right? And then how to be effective and how to leverage is was fantastic. Uh, what else did I learn? I would tell you that even how to operate, you know, as a as a woman, as the whole pit kind of throughout, there are a number of different tips and things that I that I gained from that. And how to be <laughs> physically demanding. I've never been in a more physically demanding job in my life because you think of Asia when you're over here. Asia is not close. The closest <laughs> place when you're in Japan to fly is Korea, and that's four hours. Right. Yeah. Australia is like 10. I mean, every so therefore to travel the region is weeks, right? That it takes you to travel the region. And then you're in a U.S. company. So all the global calls are at like two and three o'clock in the morning, your time, because you're the last people on the totem pole. So between the travel and time zone change and the crazy hours of calls physically, it was one of the most demanding jobs I've ever had. Yeah. If, wow. uh, when you were talking about, you know, having that background of being kind of the outsider and going into Japan and, and having that outside mindset, it reminded me of Carol Dweck and her growth mindset. And she talks about this, like the, you know, some research that they, they talk about for kids who are super smart. Um, and then, you know, everything is super easy for them and they get, you know, A's and they're not really working and they're not being, you know, pushed or struggle. And then they get to that first point where all of a sudden, it isn't easy, right? Whether that be high school or whether that be in college. And they, they haven't, they don't have the mindset to be prepared to be going, all right, I, I, I can do this. And, and they actually, they, they fail a lot more than people who, 
who had to work really hard in order to get those good grades and different things. And it just reminded me of that. And I think there's a, a lesson to be learned there that it's this, this idea of we need to be thinking about the mindset that we have going into these situations. And is that mindset one where you have to look at the, the past that you've grown up with and is that going to fit with the, the situation that's at hand? And I, I think those are some really interesting insights that you brought up um, as, as you're thinking about that. And so I don't know if you agree with that, but I, I, I thought that was a really interesting piece when you brought that up. Mm-hmm. I agree. I actually really appreciate Carol Dweck's growth mindset view. And I think that is important. And I, and I do believe that. Absolutely believe that. As a matter of fact, it's funny, even in my own family, we all got good grades. We all went to Ivy League kind of colleges. But one of my sisters, oh, I'll talk about these. One of my sisters worked harder in high school than mm-hmm. the rest of us worked in high school. She still got the good grades, still, but she worked harder. She got the best grades in college. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's how it goes. Yeah, along those lines, I, I I was struck when I was reading the book by George Bernard Shaw's comment that the rational man adapts himself to the world. The irrational man expects the world to adapt to him. Mm-hmm. And you've done both. You've figured out when and where it's appropriate to be irrational and expect the world to adapt to you. And you've been on the other side of it where you say, well, now I, I have to adapt to the world as it is. How have you decided that? Mm, you know, it's interesting because I don't even know that it's always that conscious. I look at the, I look at the situation. I'm being real candid. I, I look at the situation, and I just I, I decide what's the most effective path to get the result that I'm trying to get. And it's that frame that I bring to the table. So sometimes it means okay, figuring out how to use the momentum that's already there and just kind of curve it right to where you're going, or it means we've got to transform. And this is a blow up and kind of start again. But, you know, I've done I've done both. But what I'm always thinking about is what is the fastest path to mm. get from where we are to where we need to be? Yeah. It, wow. In an interview you did once, you said the higher you get in a company, the louder you get. Help our listeners understand what you meant by by that. Yes. Yeah, I always, there's actually two pieces. I say the higher you get in the company, the louder you you get, and therefore you need to speak more softly. And this, you also need to listen much, much harder because suddenly everybody stops talking. <laughs> so mm, it's, it's yeah. both sides. And, yeah. and, what, and what I mean by that is people take their cues from leaders. So the higher you rise and the more people you have looking up at you, they are looking at you, not just for what you say, not just for the directions, not, but they're looking to say, is she in a good mood, right? Is she not in a good mood? If she's not in a good mood, well, something wrong? Is there something wrong with the business? Do we need to be concerned, right? They're looking, they notice everything about you. You know, you hiccup a couple more times and oh my God, is she sick, right? It's, something, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. They, people focus so much on how you're behaving, what you're doing, what your attitude is, all of that to take their cues. So that if you say something like, you know, I wish we could, wish we, you know, whatever. I wish we could figure out how to get into that market. Well, if you're not careful, three weeks later, somebody's got a plan of action. 
They've got resources identified. They've got the whole bit. And it was just a whim on your part. And the last thing you wanted to do is actually take resource, right, and shift it. So when I say the louder you speak, you have to be really careful because people want to please you. Mm. Therefore, they are listening hard and want to be prepared and try to be in front of you. So if you aren't careful, right, you can cause a lot of behavior that you're not expecting. Um, especially if you rise and fall with how things are going. If you are super excited when things are going well and then really concerned when things aren't, well, your whole company is going to go really excited and really concerned and really excited. And nobody's heart can take that. <laughs> okay. Mm. It's not good for culture. Uh, so that's what I meant. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. That is fantastic. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to talk a little bit about music because you have braided music throughout your your story from high school to uh, romancing your husband and all kinds of wonderful things. This may sound a little silly, but when you when you came to the decision when you're a junior in high school that you were going to be a CEO, do you remember what was on your playlist at the time? Was there any music that might have been connected to your mindset that fueled this idea the eagles fly like an eagle <laughs> fly like an eagle huh wow wow okay what's on your playlist these days what are you listening to in in covid times oh my goodness you know it's interesting i'm listening to a lot of oldies right now yeah. <laughs> i think it's the uh, remember back when we could actually see people and interact <laughs> and dance and do all those good things um but yeah but re- a lot of uh sundays Sundays to do a brunch because um, right now I'm with my, it's been holidays. So I'm with my daughter, her family and my son we're all and his wife. So we're all together. So Sundays we do a big brunch and we literally put on the oldies playlist. When I say oldies, I'm talking spinners, Marvin Gaye, the OJs, right? I mean, Fantastic stuff. Yeah. God, fantastic stuff. Yeah. Oh my God. That is fantastic. Marvin Gaye just spent, we could spend an hour on Marvin Gaye alone. But you had a connection to Teddy Pendergrass as well. Yes, yes, you're right. His band leader, Alfie Pollard, um, his band leader was actually a friend of my husband's and his band played for our wedding. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) What a fantastic. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was it was super cool, uh, super cool. Because my husband and I love to dance, love to dance. Dance is threaded all throughout the book, and so it was wonderful having such an amazing band. The only thing we messed up on though was we forgot to tell Alfie our names. So you know what? You know when they come in, and Alfie, since he was the band director of doing it, he was the MC to announce you know the couples as they came in, you know, introducing so and so, walking so and so, and so finally it's the time for the bride and groom to walk in. And as he gets ready to speak, I'm thinking, I don't think we told Alfie our names. And what I mean by that is Scotty goes by Scotty. That's a nickname. His real name is Clarence Scott. All right. Oh. <laughs> um, and my name, I was keeping Shelly Archambault. Well, Alfie said, and now welcoming to you know, blah, 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 is Mr. and Mrs. Scotty Scott. so it's kind of just looked at each other and laughed and we walked in but it was it was really funny it's like we forgot to tell alfie well what are you gonna do i mean you guess you're gonna walk in anyway of course of course no it was fun it was just a little fun tidbit (laughs) well it's one of the things i always tell people when they're they're engaged and doing things like oh look something's gonna be messed up at your wedding and just enjoy it because those are the stories that you talk about 
10, 15, 20, 30 years later, you don't read, you don't talk about the the perfect cake. You don't talk about the, you know, the, the wonderful ceremony. You talk about, oh my gosh, the time that we didn't tell them the names and that's what happens. And so, you know, don't worry about those because those will be the memories that you get to keep and, and laugh about. And, and it's not going to, it's not going to make your day any worse. It's actually going to make it better. So exactly. <laughs> Are you one of those people that can listen to music while you work? Mm, I only low, only low because I like music. So what'll happen is something will start playing. If it's too, if it's, if it's above a certain level, something will play. And so it'll kind of get me going and I'll get distracted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm in the same club, by the way, I, the music is incredibly attractive to me. And so um, we, my wife and I were just in the car going to the grocery store the other day and don't let the sun come down. Uh, don't let the sun, you know, the Elton John song yep. comes on. And I just instantly, like we're in a conversation. I said, Oh, Kate, I said, you know, you gotta listen to Nigel Olson on the drums. He's just starting with the hi hat. He doesn't even bring the full drums in until at the, after the first verse. And she said, was that more important than what we were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The only thing I can listen to in the in the background that uh, at volume is smooth jazz. So I tend to play smooth jazz because that won't distract me in the same way. Yeah. Any yeah. particular artists, you know, like Earl Clue, Bob James. Oh, I like, I, I like all of them. Benson. I like Earl Clue. I like Dave Cuz. I like oh. Mike, uh, Brian Culbertson. Um, I wow. enjoy a new one that I discovered just a couple years back, Profool out of Scandinavia. Um, if you haven't listened to them, listen to them. P-R-A-F-U-L, Profool. Um, really, really interesting. And, you know, uh, George Benson. I mean, I mean, I like, I like a lot of it. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Shelly, thank you. This has been it's been fun. It's been informative. It's been it's been great, and I recommend uh, your book highly, highly recommend your book for for all of our listeners. Is, is there any um, uh, last words that you want to just convey to to the people listening? And uh, if they wanted to get in touch with you outside of buying your book, are there other ways that that you want um, that people can can touch and, and reach out? Sure. So first, staying in touch. I'm very active on social media. So follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram, Twitter, etc. I try to put inspirational stuff out there and what have you as I try to continue my impact and inspiration. Uh, and then with regards with regards to the, the second question in terms of something to leave everybody with, make sure people know what you do. Mm. In our culture and society, it's very polite when you say, oh, Kurt, nice to meet you. Right, nice to meet you. One of the first things we ask people is, what do you do? And most people respond 99% of the time with their title. Oh, I'm the director yeah. of operations for XYZ company. You have told people nothing. For as much as we fight and negotiate and strive for titles, they are meaningless outside of the company. And even within the company, they can be meaningless because one division to another, the job description is completely different. So don't just give people a title. Take 20 seconds and tell them what you do. I'm the director of operations. I'm responsible for all the global implementations of our most strategic accounts, right? Fine. Why do you say that? Now they know you're a manager. You know how to lead people. You have national responsibility, strategic accounts. You know about software. You know about, I mean, all these things, they suddenly know with 20 seconds. Whereas you just said, I'm director of operations. They know nothing, which means they cannot think of you when they hear about cool opportunities that you might actually be interested in. So tell people what you do. Great final advice. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Shelly, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our not goal-oriented enough brains. That's that pretty much everybody who's not Shelly is not goal-oriented enough. <laughs> she is fantastic. I mean, I just have to I I give her kudos because it is amazing how she looked at what she wanted to achieve, put a plan in place in order to achieve it, and then, you know, it, did that, it. That, yeah, did it, right? Yeah. The, the the big thing, we all, I have lofty goals, so I shouldn't say we're not that goal-oriented, right? It's, the, it's this idea, I have lofty <laughs> goals. We even sometimes sit down and plan on how to achieve those goals. It's the actual implementation of that plan that often goes awry. And yeah. Shelly, she just is one of those people that that can sit down and do that and make that uh, not not easy. It does. It is. It, it's. It wasn't easy for her, but just the the wherewithal, the will willpower that she has in order to make that happen. I think that's. I think it's wonderful. And I think the important piece here, and, and and we talked about this up at the beginning, right? Is that not everybody's going to be a CEO. Not everybody can that that dreams of being a CEO has the goal of being a CEO is going to be able to achieve that. But by setting lofty goals and by applying some of the principles that she talks about here and some of the mindsets that she brings to this, you are going to be more successful in your life and you are going to have a more productive and positive impact on the world than you would otherwise. And that, I think, is the key message out of this. Yeah, I, I love the fact that she start early in our conversation. She starts by saying, "I realized early on that the odds just weren't in my favor." Yeah, like, and and then to take that and basically say, "I built my whole life around being able to achieve goals," is an amazing cataclysm to cross. It's 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 just fantastic gulf to <laughs> to bridge, right? Yeah. To go from the odds are stacked against me but I'm going to be a goal achiever, not just a goal setter. Right. Going from hunger games into, you know, some, I don't know, what's a, what's a good movie that would be non hunger game ish. Um, uh, uh, Breakfast I, at Tiffany's. I don't know. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually even watched Breakfast at Tiffany's. So oh, it's probably fantastic. some horrible, like downtrodden, like, no, it's not a good upbeat movie so you gotta check it out it's got moon river in it that's moon that river that that, that yes river? yes that the, river. the one that uh uh never mind all right 20, we, we 20 minutes, yeah. <laughs> yes yeah so i think to to that point right her story is not easy to replicate um but the way that she approaches life is and that has power in it right there's a lot of benefit for people to be thinking about how am I approaching my life? If I'm really set on achieving some goals, there are some real good life lessons there. Yeah. So uh, maybe context matters would be something to come back to. Kind of weird that I said that. I know you're probably going, wow, why would Tim say context matters? But I did. I just did it. That came out of my mouth. And it was a goal that you had to say context matters. I know. I want to say it in every episode. But this idea that she it was not just relying on the context of the world around her. She was impl- she was building the context. She was actually co-creating uh, context around her. 
from from a very early age. I think that's a really fantastic insight because you're right. There were these aspects of of societal norms that she accepted and then there were aspects of societal norms that she said no. This doesn't yeah. help me get to the end goal that I want. Even from her conversation about you know, being really upfront and frank with her husband before they got married and, and, and saying, all right, this is, this is my plan. Are you okay? And, and I am going to be the breadwinner and you need to be staying home with the kids against societal norms at that point in time. And uh, even, even today, even today, true, true. Right? Yeah, regardless of, of man or woman, I mean, can you imagine before you even propose to or, or or you start a serious conversation about living your life together, you say, well, I just want to let you know that this is my plan. And uh, there's very few people I know who have that frank discussion before they engage in uh, any kind of commitments in their relationships and certainly uh, in their jobs. Oh, God. Know. Yeah. Right. How, can you? I can just imagine what it would be like in an interviewing process, saying, "This is where I'm going. Can you? Are you going to help me get there or not?" I mean, well, what would an interviewer do when if they got presented with a candidate that says, "Well, this sounds like a really interesting job, but this is where I'm headed. Is this job going to help me get there?" Yeah, and and I, it's really interesting too because I think the biggest piece that I find really difficult, and this is just me pontificating on my own life, right, uh, is that aspect of identifying what it is that I want and clearly articulating what that goal is and then looking and being able to discern what the steps are that are going to get me to the position that I want to get to. Yeah. That is, it's, it's, I, we, we set lofty goals all the time. We set them for the, the show. We set them for ourselves. You and I have we had do. conversations about this. We even put plans in place. But what I don't think we do a good job of, and I think this is probably common with many people, is identify, are, are those really the goals that we really want, right? Are, are they so powerful of a goal that they pull us towards them that that they have this magnetic aspect of making us more motivated to achieve them even when difficulty ensues and this idea that the plans that we have are the right ones to get there now i will i i will preface this is that shelly said and and in her book if you read her book which is a really well written book is that she's flexible, right? The the plans that she put in place were not necessarily the plans that she actually implemented. She was able to be flexible and change on the fly. She was. And that ability to discern when to be flexible and when to stick to the plan is a remarkable talent that, that she had. But it, it reminds me of, Kurt, what you're talking about with this magnetism of goals. Uh, it reminds me of our discussion with Stephen Curtis. Oh. Uh, the neuroscientist, when he talked about the the importance of a really big, uh, hairy, audacious goal, it needs to be so amazing, right? That it engages our our imagination and consumes us, so to speak, at, at some level, so that 
it orients our thinking. It orients all of our decision-making when it is so uh, consuming and so focusing for us. Um, and, and I think that that's something that, sh- that she did. And, and many of us don't ask that question that you perfectly framed up is, is this the right goal for us? And then she follows it up with a tremendous amount of research. Yes. Like, like, you know, she talked about doing homework. She said, I'm, I'm a CEO and I'm still doing homework all the time. And she, she mentioned the word research several times during our conversation about how important it was for her to identify that goal and then say, well, how, how do other people who have achieved that goal, how did they get there? Yeah. I mean, just think about what she did in researching what, what you needed to do to become a CEO and looking at the job that she took out of college, right? It was not the typical job, but she knew that, hey, it was the sales position that led because looking at the number of CEOs who had held sales positions, that was the path. And so she, she had looked and researched the path that she needed to take and then went to it. So I, I love this concept though, going back to, to BHAGs, right? These big, hairy, audacious goals. And, and, you know, Dr. Curtis was looking at, um, you know, again, high performing athletes, you know, uh, right. in the, uh, all of these really high performers. So there's something there, I think. And, and again, I don't have the empirical evidence to look at this, but if you, you know, just from the anecdotal stuff from our conversations with others and just life in general, you kind of go, if I'm going to be successful at that level, a CEO, a professional athlete, a world-class performer, I better damn well believe in that goal and have that emotional connection to it. And I loved how you mentioned it, that it, it flavors or it's the lens that we then view the world through that then comes into how we behave. And I think that's great. But I also think there's the really interesting piece that Shelly talks about, which is, all right, so we have these big goals, this lofty goal of being a CEO, but she also had these smaller goals, these bricks, right? The building blocks oh, yeah. that right. get to those goals. And, and which reminds me a lot of some of the progress principle work that Teresa Amable did, right? The idea that you need to feel the sense of progress on a, on a more timely manner, that those big, hairy, audacious goals are wonderful, but they're years in, in making. And if we don't see progress and that we don't feel like we are moving forward and that we're achieving laying these bricks down that we lose that motivation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it also speaks to two other things. Locke and Latham's work on stretch goals and the importance of having goals that are perceived as achievable, but, but are absolutely a stretch are going to be more rewarding and more likely to be achieved. And then Carol Dweck's mind, uh, growth mindset. Yeah, you know, like this, uh, Shelley embodies this stuff. Like yeah. she doesn't, she doesn't talk about it in academic terms or, or philosophical terms. She just lived the idea that that with this growth mindset, that every opportunity, everything that she did was an opportunity to grow. And that when she went from being a sales rep, she knew the next thing she was going to have to do was become a regional manager and or a branch manager. And so, and then from a branch manager, she was have to get a, a VP position. And she it was grow, 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 grow uh, constantly through her career, which is well, and even fantastic. again looking at setbacks as opportunities to learn, not as setback like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to make this now, right? The idea that, hey, she's not going to be CEO of IBM. That was a setback from her original goal. 
So she had to go out and change that, but it was an opportunity for her and to apply that mindset that, all right, this isn't going as planned. I'm going to shift now and I'm going to move to to the next thing. How about the fact that she needed, uh, didn't didn't need, I shouldn't say, she, she didn't frame it that way, um, but she relied on cheerleaders. She, need, she, re, she built groups of people in, she builds groups of people into her life that continue to support her and, and, and challenge her. I love it. I, and I think I'll, I'll try to quote here. Um, but people who are in your life who actually reinforce you, who after spending time and interaction, you actually feel better about yourself. Those are the people that you want to spend your time with. People yeah. who you spend time, who you actually feel worse about yourself. Those are the people you need to set aside. That is one of these things that, again, from all the research we have out there on um, reference groups and the importance of those reference groups in our lives, I think is just vital. So David McClellan has done um, some really interesting work on reference groups and this idea that, hey, 95% of our, our, our behavior and performance can be, you know, found by the reference group that we associate ourselves with. And, Absolutely. and even some more recent work um, by Christakis and Fowler, both on ob obesity, this idea that obesity is a uh, communal disease to a certain degree, that you are, uh, if you have an obese friend, you're 57% more likely to become obese versus if you don't. And this idea of an emotional contagion that they also did work on. Uh, in 2008 that looks at your mood and the idea that, hey, if if you are in, um, if you're, you have a friend who lives within uh, a, a certain distance of you, if they are in a good mood, you are 25% more likely to be in a good mood. There's the emotional contagion that happens by the people that you surround yourself with. And so when, when Shelly's talking about that, that's fantastic and a great reminder great actual um, insight for us to let's curate the people that are around us. And sometimes that's hard because sometimes those people that are negative in our lives that we, as she says, you need to set aside our long-term, you know, people that have been part of our life or might even be within our family. And so how do you minimize the contact? How do you minimize their negative impact on you? And then maximize those people who reinforce you and you make you feel better about yourself. It was ironic too that during our discussion on self-determination theory, she said, she said, excuse me, that uh, relatedness was like her big shortcoming. And yet she absolutely maximized the impact of it on her life by her intentionality, which of course, intentionality is a fantastic theme for any kind of success, as well as our subjective well-being, right? Yeah. Living a life that's intentional provides much more, you know, Dan Gilbert, et cetera, you know, confirm over and over again that a life that is intentional delivers more value, more pleasure to us. Yeah. Which again, some of the work that we're doing on, on people finding their groove it reinforces that, you know, that just reinforces this idea, this concept of being purposeful and being aware and taking that. So I, I want to just talk real quickly. And I know we, we don't really want to get into this, but I thought it was really fascinating when she was talking about, um, you know, as she's getting higher within the company, um, you know, she needs to actually get more quiet that she needs to listen more oh, yeah. and listen harder because 
everybody is paying so much attention to you that the higher you get, the more, the less loud that you need to be. And I would just, uh, you know, take that and look at our current situation in, in politics and just say, you know, I think that's actually really true that you don't need to shout. You don't need to, to yell your ideas and actually people tend to pick up on subtle cues and actually interpret subtleties that you may not intend them to pick up on that they actually are saying, ooh, so he really means this or she really is is saying this. She didn't say that per se, but I'm going to assume that. And that can have some really negative consequences. And so you just have to be very, very clear that you need to under listen more, speak very carefully, and you don't have to be very loud about that. My last piece of advice that I want to share that really struck me was, uh, she said, tell people what you do. Don't focus on your job title, just tell people what you do. So with that, we're going to a bonus track and a groove idea for the week with Kurt right around the corner. Hey Groovers, this is Kurt with your bonus track and groove idea for the week. Our conversation with Shelly was amazing. Her accomplishments are remarkable to say the least. And we really enjoyed speaking with someone who has overcome so many challenges with such grace. But we wanted to focus on two key aspects of our conversation with her. The first is that her willingness to set lofty goals that we call BHAGs that didn't really change over the course of her career gave her a North Star to navigate by. It was that emotional pull, the gravitational element to keep her motivated along the way. But the bricks that she used along her journey were flexible and changed as her situation changed. And that flexibility is the second aspect that we wanted to really call out. It wasn't just being flexible that got her to where she is today, but it was her incredible ability to set plans and execute those plans. And what we really see that sets her apart from her peers, all of them at IBM were probably talented, skilled, smart, and driven, but her ability to really execute on those plans and be flexible and change them when appropriate. So for your grieve idea of the week, we want you to think about Shelly's goal setting, her commitment to her goals and her ability to design and deliver her plans really set her apart. How committed are you to your current goals? Do you really love them enough to put in the extra effort that is required for you to achieve those personal or professional goals that you set for yourself? Though you may not be trying to become a CEO like Shelly, we believe in you and your ability to set your BHAG and to select those short-term bricks that will help you achieve those goals. So this week, do one thing to get a little closer to your goal. Just one thing. Just take the one single step in that direction of your North Star and see how it feels. We hope it feels good. We hope it helps you to find your groove. And with that, Groovers, we want to thank you for listening to another episode of Behavioral Grooves and especially to our conversation with Shelly. We appreciate you listening and sharing behavior grooves with a friend or a colleague. And finally, we hope that this week you go out into your world and find your groove. Mm -hmm.